This episode of the Columbia Technology Ventures podcast features a conversation between Oren Herskowitz, CTV's executive director, and a panel of early-stage entrepreneurs and venture capitalists discussing the role that intellectual property played in their startup and investment decisions. For more videos or podcasts, or to learn more about Columbia Technology Ventures, please visit www.techventures.columbia.edu. What we're going to be doing is the first part of the class, so about the first hour or so, we've got a great panel of entrepreneurs and venture investors. Um, we've, on the entrepreneur side, we've got Nina and Joe, Nina from Epibone and uh, Joe from Vidrover. Um, and we'll have them up and tell their stories in a bit. I'm super excited that Joe is back because Joe was sitting in your seats uh, two years ago frankly, one of the more skeptical but engaged students in the class, um, and subsequently has launched a company which is off to a great start here in New York. So we'll tell that story in a little bit. Um, we've also got uh, some great uh, venture investors with us, Sean and Hemi. Sean from Highland Capital Partners, Hemi Breakout Labs, um, and then someone who spans both worlds, uh, Misty Ushio, um, who's got a great background. We'll talk about uh, how she got to do what she's doing today. But now she's wearing her Tara hat, but on how many months ago were you at Harris and Harris? Okay, so the nine years until about a year ago when she left to start this company, she was at Harris and Harris, a VC firm here in New York. So Nina, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me here. It's always great to be on campus. Yeah. So I, I was I figured so with a class full of students, um, I would start by asking each of the panelists to give a little bit of background on how they, sort of what their background was, educationally, what they were doing before they started uh, the company or joined the firm they're with, and also if they're hiring. So let's take it in that order. Um, sure, well, let's see. Um, I've gotten a chance to be at Columbia, not quite in your exact shoes, um, but in many different um, sort of environments over the years. I, I started out as a Columbia student a year before I actually became a Columbia student, because um, do any of you are any of you guys engineering students in biomedical engineering? Are a couple of you? Yeah. So Gordana Vunyak Novakovic um, has been here at Columbia since 2005, and I've been her student. I was her student starting in 2004. Oh, hi, Johnny. Um, since uh, <laughs> since uh, 2004 at MIT, actually. So I I joined Columbia, uh, Gordana's lab before she even got to Columbia. Um, and I've gotten a chance now to work with her over the years in different capacities. So I was actually her PhD student here in biomedical engineering, um, starting in 06 for my master's. I moved here, as I mentioned, with Gordana to continue my work in tissue engineering with her. Um, she's an amazing mentor in um, just so many ways. So that relationship is something that students may be interested in hearing more about, perhaps. Um, and as a her student, um, uh, you know, we sort of got this sense, I was always interested in the, the bridge between the technologies that were being developed by her lab. Her lab is very inventive. Um, now three companies in the past three years have spun out. It's amazing. Um, it's it's amazing. an amazing lab. It's a really yeah. inspiring place to be and um, really collaborative, full of great students and postdocs. Um, so that range of, of undergrads, PhD students and postdocs was really beautiful um, and, and very inventive. 
Um, and so after my PhD, I actually went to work at McKinsey with a semi-blessing from her. She <laughs> sort of forgave me for going to the dark side, as she said, um, afterwards. And I worked in management consulting in, bio, um, in, in pharmaceuticals and medical devices in their practice. And after a couple years of doing that, this was in 2008 or 10, um, I, I was getting interested in sort of coming back to the lab um, because I kept seeing this trend, which is now just for, that everyone has really begun to recognize, um, that academia is sort of a hotbed of innovation. And I was seeing all these companies get spun out and become interesting um, targets for acquisition by some of these big companies. And I was just so excited about that idea of kind of going back to academia with that spirit in mind of, of entrepreneurship and invention. And Gordana, in good form, invited me back to the lab in a kind of um, a, a really wonderful moment in my own personal career. She invited me to come back to the lab and actually um, sponsored my executive MBA here at Columbia. So then I became a, a graduate student in a different school here uh, again. And um, during that same time, another postdoc in her lab, um, who became my co-founder later, Sarind Bumaratana, he and I, um, he was doing a, a pivotal pig study, a, a large animal study in Gordana's lab while I was getting my MBA in parallel with this idea that if this worked, we'd probably start a company. Um, that happened. So let me tell you a little bit about the technology, just not. Actually, before you do, oh, the other no, thing. No, that's that, the story. No, 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 that's, no, that's good. Okay. <laughs> uh, the other thing Nina's not mentioning is while she was doing that, she was also Steve Blank's TA. Yes, I was his went TA. For his block week classes here. Steve, people know Steve Blank, Lean Launchpad. Oh, actually, very few. Oh, I'm sorry. It was on your agenda that you were talking about. Um, the Lean Launchpad. So for those of you who don't know it, the Lean Launchpad methodology, um, it's one of many ways to approach entrepreneurship. But if you're actually looking to start a company, the really nice thing about um, it, was, it was sort of invented and heavily marketed by a guy named Steve Blank. who, um, And it's the methodology that the i the NSF i program, and now the NIH's SBIR programs use as well. The really nice thing about Lean Launchpad as a methodology is that it's all the coursework is available for free online. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's what, like 18 hours of content, something yeah, like that? it's the flipped classroom. So the content itself is, is a small portion of the work, and then it kind of gets you enthused to get out of the building and, and really do the work yourself. Right. So if you Google Steve Blank Lean Launchpad, you'll find all the videos online. You can just watch them. But anyway. Yeah, that class was one of my favorites. I was also Dean Hubbard's um, student in his entrepreneurial finance class. I did not take this specific class, although now I'm, I'm getting some jealousy uh, <laughs> seeing the syllabus. Um, so I, I've had a chance to kind of be in a few different capacities here at the university. Um, and then we spun the company out officially in 2014. Um, we licensed some of the technology that we had developed while here at the university from the licensing office. So our, 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 manage, our portfolio manager is actually here, Beth Cotterer. We love her and have, um, you know, the, the relationship has really morphed as we've, as we've spun out the business. Um, so I'd say... Okay, what does know, the company do? We um, grow bones from stem cells. I've got a little bioreactor here. One of our, our part-timers is actually here in the audience. Hi, Johnny. Um, but we, uh, we take stem cells. Um, it's, Gordana's lab is all about tissue engineering, so growing replacement body parts for the body. Um, and those, those body parts can be used either for regenerative medicine, which is what we do, or for drug testing. So we grow bones. We use stem cells and scaffolds and little systems we call bioreactors to essentially grow skeletal implants that can um, replace our own if, they, if, if we're injured or have um, some sort of um, you know, cancer, trauma, congenital defect, conditions that require skeletal repair. Um, and so we're basically harnessing the power of cells in the lab to, to grow these replacement parts. Um, and as we're moving this now towards the clinic, um, our relationship to all of these different matters that 
seem to have come up in your syllabus have been coming up for us. Things like licensing the technology, developing it as a company as opposed to academics, figuring out financing and, um, and all of that. So Great. looking forward to a good discussion. Thanks. And on the financing front, you've raised Roughly uh, X. About a, a little over $10 million from a mix of government grants. We started out with SBIR funds, and then we, um, our, our first grant um, from outside the government came from the Teal Foundation's breakout labs. So Hemi is their um, scientific director. She's on the panel. Um, and then we've raised on the, um, we, we raised matching funds from the New York City Partnership Fund um, on the order of about a million dollars, and then from um, uh, high net worth individuals and, and small funds. How many total? Um, we, we've done this in a little bit. This is maybe something we could talk about. We've been a little bit unorthodox in that we've raised money from about 60 um, note holds, 60 investors. Um, as a, it's, it's not quite crowdfunding, but it's not um, the smallest group. Um, and it's uh, now that we look ahead towards raising institutional money, it's, um, it's, it, 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 it poses interesting um, strengths for the company as well as, as challenges. So I'm Great. happy to talk about those as well. Thank you. So stay up here. Um, Joe, if I could ask you to join yes. and uh, come over here next thing you. Joe, yes. great to see you again. Um, so same questions to you. A little bit about what was your background before your PhD, during your PhD, cool. how'd you end up where you are today? Cool. Uh, I, whenever I talk to an audience, I always ask, um, how many of you are from or have been to New Mexico? Because that's where I grew up. And this is all, yeah. <laughs> from, from New Mexico? Yes. Albuquerque, <laughs> where? What high school? Rudoso, nice. Las Cruces High. Cool. Do we get school chance? <laughs> no, we're not going to get into that. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so I grew up in New Mexico, kind of in the middle of nowhere. I um, ended up doing my undergrad in San Diego at the University of San Diego, and then went on to work for a company called MITRE, um, doing kind of defense um, style uh, engineering work. Um, I was electrical engineering, in particular, working on kind of communication systems and radios um, while I was um, both in undergrad and then going into MITRE. Uh, decided I wanted to do a PhD, so found uh, Professor Shifu Chang. Uh, who's the Senior Vice Dean of Engineering here at Columbia University and works on video and multimedia understanding. So broadly speaking, I guess you could say my academic goal and thesis would be that uh, humans understand video in a very um, intelligent way by taking in contextual cues uh, and all of the different modalities present in video to build really intelligent systems using the structure uh, within specific domains. And so building a company that basically has that as our prime goal. When I came here, I started working uh, on a system called News Rover, uh, which we built. What we did was we built a server rack in CRF, which is a Columbia Research Facility, um, automatically recorded 100 hours of television news a day, uh, found relevant news events from the entire you know, 100 hours. Uh, this is Zika virus in Miami. This is people talking about the latest Donald Trump election. This is all these different kind of news events finding all of the coherent segments that are speaking about those sections, bringing them all together, and building a Google News style aggregation of all of television news completely automatically, um, and extracting things like who's talking on screen, what's appearing on screen, what text is on screen, so you can search through that, and have a very tailored and kind of um, specific way to search through all of this broad scale television news that's really valuable. Um, built that for four years. We ended up patenting it through Oren's office uh, about two or three years into my PhD, uh, and then started at particular times thinking about how could we uh, commercialize this technology. You know? And I, I started thinking as I got through and, and working on my PhD, I had these papers, very nice, blah, blah, blah. Um, but we were, I was kind of worried. I had done all this really nice engineering work that I was very proud of um, that was never probably going to see the light of day because when I left, I would just shut the switch off on the system. Uh, and so we started thinking about how can we commercialize this? What's the best way to do it? And, and we spent probably a year thinking about that. Um, and what we were doing was very illegal 
because we were just taking television news and then trying to put it back online, which violates all types of copyright laws. And we were told all the time that it violates copyright laws. Uh, and so <laughs> that was great. Uh, so then about a year ago in January, um, CTV and this other group called the New York City Media Lab um, started something called The Combine, which was a startup incubator for research coming out of university labs. Um, we were one of the first teams in that um, kind of group. And we were able to formulate what I hope is a reasonable business plan around how can we take all of this technology that we patented, built about video understanding using these multimodal and contextual cues um, and take that out into industry. And so what we've decided to do is become basically a B2B enterprise software company that helps allow media companies um, leverage their large video collections uh, by finding those granular clips of video and information that are incredibly valuable and then posting those and disseminating and automatically publishing those online into the places where they're going to have the most views and basically get the most ad dollars for those companies. Uh, so that's what VidRover does. That's what, that's what we do. A little bit more about me. Um, I quite literally was in your shoes. I, when I came here, I was an NSF IGERT student. And one of the requirements of IGERT students is that they take this class. So where are all the IGERT students? <laughs> I know. Yeah. So uh, I came in as probably, I think Oren said it, a skeptical academic who was like, everything should be open. Everything should be free. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, that was my view. Um, I, Still hold that view kind of, but not as much. Um, I think there's a lot of value in um, intellectual property and kind of patenting. And uh, this was a class that really started me thinking about how I can um, take what I built here at Columbia, where um, you know, I, I absolutely love, and, and have it actually make an impact in the world. So, Great. Yeah. And your funding, where are you in sort of the life cycle of the company? Yeah. Well, I should note, Joe's being modest, there were 60 applications for the Media Lab and nine companies selected, of which his was one. Um, and it was an absolute star in the program, including even though you guys had to sort of pivot halfway through the yeah. program. For, do yeah, you want to just talk about that just for like a minute? Cool, yeah, the, the program was great. We came in uh, wanting to build the basically Google News style television news aggregation system that we had built at Columbia and, and we liked a lot. Um, started talking to people and we really, um, it, first of all, you're in an amazing position. This is one a piece of advice if you do want to start a company. Saying you're a student, you can get so many really cool meetings just saying you're a student and not the CEO of X company. So like when I was a student, I would say, hey, executive at X media company, I'm working on video. I would love to chat with you. And it's amazing. People love talking to students. So we learned so much uh, about pain points and, and what kind of how people were trying to monetize their content, the issues that they were having. Um, and so through these, these interactions, we were able to kind of come up with this enterprise software style of both syndication and metadata generation um, in specific media domain and news verticals um, that we think is, is going quite well right now. We're working with some large media corporations doing pilot programs uh, that are going well. So great. Very happy and are you that. raising money? We are, yes. I will say we're raising money. We're pretty early. The company is only about five months old. I proposed my thesis on, in May, so like literally very, very uh, early. So I, in summer, just started the company uh, around June. And so we are a little bit early, I would say. We have raised some funding. We've, we've got some early stage funding from um, student-led kind of venture firms. Um, and then we also won an award from Publicist Group, which is a large marketing and media um, ad agency out of, out of France. So and you have, have a that. first sale to, or first funded research project already? Is that uh, right? We have, yeah. We, so we have kind of like our pilot programs are paid. So we're getting, we ha do have paid customers that are paying us to basically use our system and leverage our system, which is really nice. We're really excited about that. That is something um, biopharma companies cannot typically say. We launched yeah. four months ago and we have our first paying customers. Yeah. <laughs> 
that was one thing that was nice. So like the company is very new, but the technology itself is relatively robust because we were building it for four years. That's one advantage I think I had um, working in the media and in my lab that I have. So uh, mini labs do really technical research and don't necessarily build systems that are highly usable. Like we did a little bit of both because we did build this thing that had to process 100 hours of television news, which isn't something that happens in academia all the time. So that was a really nice Great. thing that Good. made it easy to transition. Are you hiring? Uh, we will be hiring probably January or February. So what soon. kind of engineers? Uh, engineers. Engineers. Okay, got it. Engineers and business. Okay, yeah. so find Joe during the break if you want to get in line. Um, next, we will bring up Misty. Uh, a little bit about your background. Tell us about the company. Um, your background is uh, quite interesting. So actually, I think it's it's a great um, uh, way to sort of show the wandering path that yeah, leads yeah. to great outcomes. It's sort of like you don't really know where you're going to end up, and it's okay. <laughs> Um, so I guess just a little bit about my background and then I can um, talk about the company. Um, so I have a PhD in biochemical engineering um, uh, sort of back in the early 90s and started working at Merck in 95, 94-95 and really was a research scientist in large pharma and sort of, you know, I spent 11 years there um, ultimately running a lab. Um, and just really got to the point where I just was not going to be a career scientist. It just wasn't really that um, interesting to me. I wasn't going to be that successful at it. And I was really trying to think about, like, what am I going to do? Because I've been, this is what I've been doing for so long. Um, and really started to think about, like, okay, what's this interface between science and business and strategy? And is there a way to sort of, like, navigate that? Um, and started talking to people at Merck. Um, and then also, it turns out, um, I learned about tech transfer offices, which I had no idea that what that was um, when I was at Merck, and learned about them and um, was sort of intrigued by this concept of taking sort of very fundamental science, and it's this like launching off point of like how do you start a business, how do you commercialize, how do you move it from the university setting into a commercial setting, and so after 11 years at Merck, and honestly, like I, I honestly thought I was going to be at Merck for my entire career. It was a very, it was also a very generous time in the pharma world when I was there. Um, they paid for all of my graduate work. Um, and so it kind of surprised myself that I was like so like ready to jump off. And so I actually took a job at the Columbia Tech Transfer Office. Um, and it was, you know, it was just this big eye-opener to think about like, okay, here are all these patents and you know, how do you think about this and where do you start? And you know, how do you kind of it's almost it's almost a blank sheet of paper, right? It's it's like not quite, but it's almost. And sort of like how do you form something out of that? And um, when I showed up, they they asked me to manage the nanotech IP portfolio because at the time there was a lot of effort in the material science and the electrical engineering, and it was a lot of methods and it was a lot of particles, and I was trying to figure out like you know what is this? Is there anything here? Um, and I ended up talking to lots of different groups. Um, and one of which was Harris and Harris Group, which at the time was investing in nanotechnology. And so, through really the the um, kind of the portfolio at Columbia that I was managing, met Harris and Harris Group, which is a, a early stage venture fund here in New York. And what's slightly different about it is it's publicly traded. And so there's a capital markets aspect to it. There's an evergreen structure that's very different than traditional funds, which is a totally different topic. Um, but sort of through, through this interaction, um, it turned out they were looking at a lot of life science technologies and um, essentially over some time asked me to join the group um, to look at and to invest in early stage life science technologies distinctly different from 
um, biotech and med device. And so you'll see how that kind of translates. So I, I joined Harrison Harris Group back in 07, um, started, did lots of different types of investing. Actually, some, some were um, uh, biotech products, some were diagnostics, some were tools, some were sensors for technology. I mean, kind of a, a big range. Um, and spent uh, nine years there um, and saw a lot of different, some really successful, some not so successful. I think we can get to like the value of IP at the beginning of a company, at the end of the company, because there is value on both ends there. Um, and, but, but probably like three years ago, just was really interested in the concept of tissue engineering and the advances in stem cell science, and was really lucky, as Nina mentioned, to know <laughs> Professor Vanyak Novakovic. Um, and, and, you know, I've known her now for, t for over 10 years and just asking her, you know, like, so what's kind of here and now for ready for commercialization? And so it's interesting, I think like Epibone and Terra Biosystems span like the two gamuts of, of tissue engineering, whereas, um, you know, I think Epibone's taking like amazing technology for like, like really valuable, um, like therapeutic approaches and, and Terra's taking a different approach, which is saying, let's take stem cells and make human cardiac tissue in a dish, and by doing so, you now have a predictive model to understand how new therapies will either um, hurt people or help people. And so we can make healthy tissue, and we can test if a new therapy is going to be toxic or cause any kind of heart problems. And we can also create disease models so we can look at new therapies and see if we can actually reverse disease or cure disease. Um, so kind of going back to the story, so um, Matt Gordana, she was telling me about this technology. Um, I got pretty excited about it because it wasn't, it wasn't just a science project. It, had, it was for, far enough along um, that you could really think about commercializing, you could think about customers, you could think about um, building a business around it. And so she had a collaborator at the University of Toronto both of them came from MIT and Bob Langer's lab. And so through this effort, um, we at Harrison Harris Groups formed the company and seeded it with 500K. And this was back at the end of 2014, so kind of shortly after Epibone launched, Terra launched. And um, so, we spent, um, so, we, so we spent 2015 using that money um, really to look at technology validation at the University of Toronto and also um, just to push on the market. So like why would pharma care about this? Do you need predictive heart tissue models? Is it something that's nice to have? Is it something you need to have? And it turns out because you have these like spectacular failures in phase three or on the market where people are getting heart attacks or dying and things get pulled and you're like, well, how did that happen? How did something that was being studied for 10 plus years all of a sudden get pulled from the market? Um, you know, how do we prevent that from happening? And, and so there's actually a lot of activity around trying to identify new technologies to solve that exact problem. Um, and that's what we're trying to do. Um, so then just to fast forward a little bit to, end of 2015, we were getting some interesting traction from pharma, clear, clear, much clearer idea of like where the market was, um, realized we needed our own lab and real, like our own people. It was all virtual and I was running it out of Harrison Harris Group. And so at the end of 2015, we raised um, another two plus million in seed financing from Harrison Harris Group, from the New York City Partnership Fund, and from Alexandria Ventures, which is the life science real estate company, um, which is here, but also in many other places um, around the country. 
and use that money and really spent this time um, this year, which is now we're kind of at the end of it, just crazy, is to get a lab, um, establish that, get that up and running. So now we're in the Alexandria Center for Life Sciences. Um, we've been able to hire three postdoc level scientists, two of which are from Toronto, from the lab in Toronto. And I just want to emphasize, like, that's made the technology transfer into our own labs, like, amazingly, I wouldn't say 100% frictionless, but it just, the, all the know-how and the nuance, you know, you, you don't realize when you're doing it every day how much it's just in your brain and not on paper. And so I think we were able to ramp up pretty quick, mostly because we were able to attract people to leave their their university positions and join the company. And then we actually hired a third person um, from the New York um, Stem Cell Foundation recently. So um, Great. that's sort of where we are. Are you and, hiring? Pardon? Are you hiring more? Or we are hiring. Oh, and then once we, so then I left Harrison Harris Group oh, in February. So now it's me. And so there's four of us on payroll. And then we have some a constellation of other people who certainly add a ton of value. We are hiring, we're raising money, so we're raising our Series A. We're raising $7 million. We have six of that identified. We're trying to hone in on the last bit and wrap that up. And as soon as we do, we will be hiring on lots of levels. Great. Thank you. Um, Sean, if I could ask you to join us. So same question to you. How'd you, how'd, you, uh, how'd you get started and end up where you are now? Yeah, first, thanks uh, for having me, Oren, and uh, great to be here today. Uh, so I grew up in the suburbs of Philly, and if IP isn't your thing and Philly sports is, we can talk afterwards. Uh, my partners always remind me that you know, working in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I, I work in the city of champions. So I have to deal with that each and every day, and it's, it's very painful. Uh, so my family, if you go back several generations, were either educators or writers. So naturally, I became an electrical engineer. Uh, I went to the University of Delaware as an undergrad. Uh, had a great time, uh, did very well, uh, but when I woke up my senior year, I wasn't quite sure I'd learned anything or I didn't know if I was going to be competitive. Uh, I also really liked the idea of technology and practicing it, uh, so I ended up getting a PhD uh, full ride at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I quickly had the love of engineering beat out of me. Um, for those of you, uh, like Joe, that actually went through and completed it, um, uh, certainly 20 years ago, uh, having a PhD required you to get very esoteric. Uh, and I'm very much applied. So I ended up um, go, uh, getting a master's in a year and uh, working with GTE. And GTE today is known as Verizon. So, uh, and it was an interesting time. The early 90s, you had this real revolution of data for the first time becoming uh, a real thing and the internet. Uh, and having spent my time in the labs and, and really knowing what the internet was, uh, I was really in the right place at the right time. Uh, communications was being deregulated. And uh, one day I was sitting down with a startup, a company called Ascend. Uh, and this was a company trying to sell to a very large company like Verizon. And the chances were very small that they would be successful. Yet I was being taken out to the Four Seasons. You know, I was being treated way better than any of the incumbent vendors uh, were treating me. And so I asked one day, I just said, so how are you in business? Like, I don't understand this because you know, you're not selling to us. Um, and I learned, I was explained this whole process of venture capital. And 
Uh, I thought that that was the perfect job for me, uh, an opportunity to really dig into trends and to technology, uh, but most importantly, work with people, work with entrepreneurs. Uh, and so I decided, how do you become a venture capitalist? And I saw that most venture capitalists came from a couple of schools. I applied, uh, got into a, another school further up north. You probably never heard about it. Uh, but that took me uh, to, to Boston. Um, and then when I graduated, uh, again, right time. Uh, MBA? I was for an MBA. MBA. Okay. Uh, I went to a job fair and uh, literally met the partner who I'm still partners with today, uh, Dan Nova. I mean, to me, the, the thought of you know, getting a venture capital job at a job fair is, is, is shocking. Uh, but that's what happened. And uh, I've been there ever since. Uh, I was joined in 98. Uh, I focus on uh, the technology side, specifically enterprise technologies. Um, last I'll just add, you know, we've had a very good relationship with Columbia. Uh, we've backed at least three or four companies. I've personally backed one, uh, a company called Infinio. Uh, it used to be called Silver Lining. It was started by Professor Vishal Misra. Uh, we've also worked with YY, who's one of the, I guess, most famous uh, professors coming out of the CS department. Uh, he's had two companies, Smarts, uh, and then a company we backed called VM Turbo, which is now called Turbonomics. So, um, Happy to add to it's it. It's great. And Highland, just as an overall, yeah. Highland is, you know, how much capital under management? What fields does the firm invest in in general? Yeah. Uh, so Highland was started in 1987. I, I always describe ourselves as a classic venture capital firm. What does that mean? Uh, we come in at what we consider the classic Series A situation for our company. Uh, the founders have been together. They have some sort of early product or demonstration that they can build it. There's some type of customer or partner that's been able to validate uh, that this indeed is interesting. Uh, and we provide that, that first institutional check, you know, as low as a million. Our average is six. We'll invest as much as 25 million in a Series A. And uh, we're really there to help accelerate growth, uh, focus quite a bit on building management teams. Uh, and certainly, we've developed, a, a being, having done this for nearly 30 years as a firm, we've got, a, I think, an excellent network of relationships that we use to help accelerate companies uh, to, to meet potential customers and partners as well. Great. And do you have a couple of like big investment hypotheses these days? Are there certain areas that, you are, that are hot for you guys that people should pitch you on during the break? Yeah, it's interesting. So we just did our annual meeting. So uh, I feel like I could hit that button and, and share with you everything we told our, our limited partners. But an area that I'm sure you're very familiar with uh, is cybersecurity. Um, I remember in 2001, we backed a company called Bit9, which is today known as Carbon Black, which is confidentially filed for an IPO. And I remember my partner saying, this is it. This is the last security company we ever do because it's all been solved. Uh, 16 investments later, you know, it remains arguably the hottest area. You know, the flip side is, is that there's tremendous number of companies going in, so it's very competitive. Um, moving way forward, uh, a lot of what we do is develop thesis. So just real quickly, a couple areas that we're interested in is uh, what we call autonomy. So think about autonomous vehicles. Uh, we backed a company called Newtonomy uh, up in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, we're very interested in this theme called the future of work, uh, which is uh, a very broad theme, but largely focused on you and the way that your career will evolve and how do companies need to think differently about that, uh, as well as in, in massive industries, how do partners and suppliers work together? You know, we're, we're already seeing numerous examples of how that's changed, and, and we think it's uh, really just the beginning of that. Great. 
And apparently, if you want to get a job at Highland, you just go to a job fair at any yeah. random school, and they'll just hire you, which is great. Uh, so that's, Very that's, low bar. that's a big takeaway. Yeah. Um, Hammy, <laughs> uh, if you could join us. Um, so uh, same question to you. <laughs> Well, um, inspired by Joe, I've never asked this, but how many of you are from Alaska? <laughs> so I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, and I've never said that in my bio before. Uh, at this age, it doesn't really make that much sense, so I'll skip over uh, to the, the neuroscience PhD at MIT, um, at which point I was all set to do a, I started my postdoc, it wasn't going particularly well, I knew I'd have to get a second postdoc and probably a third around the time that I was doing this. Um, ended up at that point going to a Christmas party where I met an editor at the journal Nature. And they had just launched a journal Nature Neuroscience and they said, she said to me, oh, you know, we're looking for a neuroscientist at Nature to replace um, the person who's gone to launch this new journal. And I just never assumed, I had no idea what a Nature editor was or who, I didn't think it was me, uh, had never published a high profile paper, applied, got the job and thought, well, if I take this for a year, um, who wouldn't want to hire me as a postdoc having had a year of editorial experience at Nature? Um, so I did that, and then five years later, I thought, okay, I'm an editor now. Um, <laughs> came out west to start, uh, help start the Public Library of Science Open Access Journals. That was how I landed in San Francisco. Uh, after a few years of doing that, I realized I had reached the, the peak of my learning curve and wanted to do something different, essentially. And in publishing, if you're a scientist and interested in science, you reach a point where you can't really advance your career and still stay as involved with the science. So at that point, being in the Bay Area, I became a consultant um, for, for uh, biotech communications, basically helping these very early stage companies uh, communicate their stories at a point where they really don't have a product, their, their, their differentiation is still highly technical and yet they need to get in front of investors and audience, uh, potential customers and so on. So I was doing websites and, and um, videos and uh, investor presentations, that kind of thing. And that was when I met my colleague, Lindy Fishburne, who had started Breakout Labs out of the Teal Foundation. And Breakout Labs is a fund that invests in very, very early stage, hard science and technologies companies that has come out of the foundation. So it's putting philanthropic dollars to work in companies as the effectors of change in society. So. You know, we, we all know that there's a lot, well, potentially less, but a fair amount of money that goes into basic research, and there are investors that are ready to pick up things once they've reached a certain stage of maturity. But we really felt that the foundation had a role to play in that, in that gap where there's essentially a broken marketplace, and that's where foundations come in. So uh, we started Breakout Labs in 2011, funded our first companies in 2012, have now funded 30 companies across all areas of science and technology. So we started with a company that does uh, antimatter space propulsion technologies and um, you know, now all the way to uh, uh, bone from, from stem cells, right? So the, the whole gamut. What we are really looking for is a fundamental uh, breakthrough scientific advance that is unique to the company. Uh, a first commercialization hypothesis that the company is running towards, and a team of people that's usually at that point um, some sci the scientists who've been involved in the technology and maybe a part-time biz dev person. Uh, they're, they're really the right people to um, both develop the technology, bring in that implicit knowledge that you were talking about that makes the tech transfer so much easier, and also uh, see it through to a point where there's significant money to bring in external management if that is necessary, and that may not always be necessary. Got it. Great. 
And um, the general sort of min-max on the investments that you guys do? So Breakout Labs itself will do a one-time uh, investment grant, hybrid investment, that is up to $350,000. We have recently launched something called Breakout Ventures, uh, of which I am a partner. And Breakout Ventures is a vanilla venture fund that can invest in companies that are coming out of Breakout Labs that have found a lead investor. And there, the check sizes are to be determined, but on the order of a few million in, in Series A's and B's. Co-investing with a lead investor. Exactly. Not acting as the lead investor. No, we will okay. not. We need to find, as, as my colleague Lindy says, somebody else who loves our companies as much as we did at the beginning to, to validate that. Interesting. That's, a, that's interesting. Um, great. Thanks. So I'm going to start this off with, um, with the Shark Tank question. Uh, we talked about this in an earlier class, but that there's a, a perception that um, you know, when a startup is out looking for funding, that you go talk to your investors and they go, the Shark Tank, do you have a patent on that? And you go, uh-huh. And then they say, great, and just move on um, and write a check to you. So the question is, for starting with the entrepreneurs maybe, but, but opening up to whoever, um, what role all three of you have started companies that had patents behind them? Um, when, you were out, when you were out raising your funding or out talking to people now, what role does the, your intellectual property portfolio or the IP of others play in raising your money? Yeah, I think for us it was certainly very important. Um, we didn't. We, we were in the process of negotiating our license agreement when we were first um, starting the company, and, and we actually had taken some funds into the company under and kept them under escrow at the beginning until we executed on that license agreement. So I would say, in that sense, it was an important trigger <laughs> for funding. Um, I think in terms of how much of the IP, we had a little bit of a choice about um, which IP to take into the company at the very beginning versus some IP that we knew wasn't at the same level of development, let's say. So, you know, we had just filed for, um, our relationship with CTV was, you know, over many years. And so um, certain patents had, had were at the provisional stage, others had, you know, were, were undergoing prosecution. And so I think for us, we also take took the tack of, Let's let. There was a lot of discussion around which which parts of that portfolio to take in. Um, I, I also think it was important for certain investors not to know just that we had executed on our own license agreement, but um, how that IP would be treated in the marketplace. Um, so people asked us about freedom to operate analysis and whether we'd done that. That's very expensive, so we did a light touch version of that. Um, we uh, we hired. Um, we were got lucky actually that we had hired someone who'd previously been a fellow at CTV, so it had some experience with, with understanding that analysis and performing that analysis. And I think being able to, to answer the question, do you have a patent? Yes. And is your patent useful? <laughs> and and um, does it block the right people? Do you, are you still able to do the, the research you'd like to do? Those, those questions all certainly came up for us. I would imagine that depending on the type of technology, that might differ. Yeah, I think the type of technology is a really great point there. Um, I think, generally speaking, it is more up in the air how valuable a software patent is yeah. in compared to hard science patents. So we also license our technology from Columbia. Um, we have a patent. We also have all the software that we built here um, that we kind of took out of the company and are now using, um, changing all the time, obviously, but using uh, to move the company forward with our license. Uh, I believe, so we are very much earlier than kind of the other entrepreneurs, so uh, our investment discussions, um, there is, some people see value in it and some people don't, I will say. I think there is a, a scale for software patents as to uh, 
whether investors are excited about having this potentially defensible technology. And some people will tell you in software, it's impossible to defend a software patent. You never know what X company is going to be doing. It's going to be very difficult to actually assert this in any meaningful way, um, and it's not particularly defensive. So I think for software companies, it's a little bit different. It's a much grayer scale. You kind of have to find an investor that might agree with your premise as to how valuable this particular patent is and is not. Right. The people who haven't, what have they, their perspective has generally been just you yeah. can't really enforce it? You can't really enforce it. It's not particularly. So if you can't enforce it, it's not providing you a ton of value. Why are you licensing it? Right. Things like that. I mean, so I agree with everything, and maybe just to take a different um, at another point. Um, for us, we actually need. Sorry, I didn't wear my <laughs> microphone friendly outfit today. <laughs> um, so the the we actually have uh, lots of different pieces of IP, um, and there's actually like a big potential IP portfolio that you could go out and get. And so there's a discussion around. Um, especially at the early stage, how do you, how much money do you want to spend on your IP portfolio, and what do you need, and what, what do you need to operate, and what do, you, what would you like to sort of like own the space? And so I think, depending on how much money you have, you can think about that problem or that opportunity differently. Um, so that's sort of like one comment. Another comment is. Um, you know, in the strict biotech model where you have like one patent that covers one molecule that could be, you know, like a $10 billion company um, or more, um, you know, there's, that's, that's, a, that's like one model. And then you have actually more like the tech model where you have, where you need like, you know, a thousand patents to, for one product. And so how do you, as an early stage company, like navigate how much you can really take in on IP to commercialize your product because you end up you end up having to pay for everything. There's no business. You might as well just like go home. So I think there's like and we we um, fall. I mean, more on the we fall in between. It's not just a one patent kind of technology. There's multiple pieces to it. Um, some of which are very clear hardware materials, and some are less, than, you know, kind of in the software methods. Like, do you really need it? Do you not really need it? And I think the the, you know, so the question is, as you're trying to like figure all that out, um, how does that fit into your economic and revenue model? And at some point, it doesn't make any sense. And so I think there's just like, depending on your business, you th you're going to think about IP and the licenses a little differently. How do the investors react to this? So, uh, you know, so when you are looking at companies to invest in, uh, how much diligence do you do? Do you do freedom to operate analyses on your own, or do you just trust Nina that she's done hers well? Like, how much of a part of the conversation is this? Either of you guys. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I can say with one exception, and we can talk about that one exception, and that one exception, the whole company was based around intellectual property. Uh, but it's probably, IP probably doesn't come up in the first one or two meetings. Um, and so from, from my simple view, I think about IP in, in two broad buckets. One is the way I think we usually think about IP, which is the patents. And uh, you know, I'm generally of the view that if you have IP in a software company, that's the context I'm speaking uh, from, um, it's only worthwhile if you actually have the ability to enforce it. And generally, you only have the ability to enforce it if you become a big company. And at that point, it's probably more about bartering because you're most likely infringing upon some other big company's IP. So we can go and have a lot more discussion on that. But um, so that's kind of the patent view. Uh, with that said, I, I do think having you know, a, a strategy around patent development and creation is really important, and if that's of interest, we can talk about that. Um, 
The other side of IP, which I do focus on greatly, is what I would call the, the general intellectual property of the company. And, and for sure, one of the things we work at, look at when we invest in a company is we, we ask the founders to essentially represent that all the intellectual property that the company needs to execute is within the company and that they're not keeping some outside. Often we'll ask uh, founders to pledge shares against that you know, as, hmm. as a warranty. Um, Another aspect of the intellectual property that we really focus on is what I would call the day-to-day the -day stuff. So company presentations, materials, databases. I, I view this as intellectual property. It's not necessarily patentable. Um, but that is stuff that when employees leave or you get in other situations, uh, you really do need to have a strategy around it because oftentimes you'll need to employ that in order to defend yourself as you're growing. And again, that's totally outside of the traditional patenting that I think we often focus yeah. on with this. Can I just ask a clarifying yeah. question? You yeah. mentioned you, um, you require the founders some often to pledge that they have all the IP they need within the company. Do you mean that all of the IP that is theoretically part of the founding of the company, or do you mean that they don't infringe anyone else's? Uh, more the former. So more what, the former. What, we're, what, what we're trying to avoid is a situation where a founder starts a company but actually has a side set of IP that the company actually needs in order to execute mm. their business. Mm. You know, we, we generally at the Series A don't have the ability, nor do we want to spend the resources to go out and, and do a full kind of you know, soup to nuts, you know, is the IP there? But we do ask the founders to ensure that you know, here's the vision, here's the business plan we've agreed to. You need to represent that all the intellectual property that, that's required to execute on this plan that you have is coming within the company. Got it. Yep. Okay. And you don't do full freedom to operate analyses before you it, invest? It's, it's pretty rare. Uh, again, we can talk about the one exception. Uh, but you know, there's, there's pros and cons of doing that full freedom um, to operate analysis because what if you actually find something? So you know, I think it, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nuanced discussion uh, around it. If we think that there may be an IP challenge, we'll often hire an IP attorney to give us, again, a very high 20 to 40,000 foot view of, okay, here's, here's some of the intellectual property that may or may not impact. And, and again, th this is not an uncommon thing. And when we go out to a third party to do this research, they kind of know exactly the level that we want to understand. And you know, it's really a red signal. You may have a big issue here. Or a greenish symbol, which is to say, sounds good, but you, know, you may need to look into this further down the road. Yeah, which is interesting. It's, as we talked about, intellectual property is rarely a black and white answer. Um, and the only time you eventually find out if it's, if it's a black or white answer is when you're in litigation and it comes to the end of a litigation. Otherwise, you will simply never know. Um, so it's interesting that you can hear a, an investor can put millions of dollars into a startup with language like reddish light, greenish light, something we'll look at later. Because even at that scale, it's often not a yeah. black and white answer. Um. Uh, yeah, so I did some consulting for one, a growth stage venture firm that was putting you know, lots and lots of money into companies. And we did have them, um, we, we had a patent, we had a, a attorneys look at this, spent I think $40,000 in a typical case you know, doing these kind of freedom to operate things. For our scale of investing at Breakout Labs, it totally doesn't make any sense. I would say also from Breakout Labs perspective, we're really trying to find unique, cutting edge, 
technologies breaking new ground. So as part of our process, we uh, invite in proposals and then we have experts evaluate those proposals. The companies need to feel comfortable enough to give us enough detail that experts can evaluate it. And that usually means they've filed a provisional patent at the very least. Um, so quite often our companies do have some IP through university, but we're really more focused on the uniqueness of the technology itself, of the, the work that they're doing um, through other, other measures, mainly through expert peer review. Uh, so I would say most of the companies that we uh, support do have some core IP that they've often licensed out of a university. And I, uh, having never dealt with tech transfer before, actually naively assumed when we first started Breakout Labs that a university would only expend the time and effort to patent something if they had done this kind of analysis to establish. And then I learned there were a lot of motivations for why somebody, uh, a tech transfer office, might decide <laughs> to patent something. Um, so anyway. Long answer to say we don't do a formal analysis either. I will look in you know Google patents and things like that, uh, but more about the uniqueness around the technology. Yeah, and the challenge from the university perspective, obviously, is that at Columbia, for instance, we have a thousand or so unlicensed patents that we believe in and think will be valuable someday. We'll be right maybe a quarter of the time, and that's still way that's higher than high. most universities. <laughs> um, so uh, we end up licensing about 15 to 25% of the portfolio. Um, but so imagine if we did a, you know, a standard FTO. Well, here, I'll ask our two attorneys in the audience. Gabe, Greg, standard FTO, price for a good, robust FTO analysis? In life science? Let's say life science. A good, robust FTO analysis for pharmaceuticals or biotech could be $350,000. Oh, I was right. OK. <laughs> and that might be good enough to be for Series A, but when you're coming up thinking about getting acquired, going public, and Yeah. So if you do the math, you know, if you've got 1,000 unlicensed patents and you're only going to ever license, let's say, 15 to 20% of them, but to, make, to do the full FTL on each of them, first of all, would cost you millions of dollars. And secondly, to Sean's point, sometimes you don't necessarily want to know. Um, if there's a borderline case and it's still in prosecution, you may not necessarily want to know. Yeah, please. Just lean close to the mic. Oh. So, on the, on the investing side, I mean, we, we definitely um, IP was a, was a definite list uh, on the list of like um, criteria whether or not we were going to invest at Harris and Harris Group. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, in practical terms, it was sort of like, okay, you're going to be this tiny little company and you're probably going to be talking to really, really big companies that can just gobble you up in like two seconds. And so what are you kind of bringing to the table? And I think having IP um, gives you, can give you a seat at the table if it's something that's out of their realm. And so I, I think it's just like one of those pieces that it doesn't, you know, you, you're never going like, to quite be on equal footing when you're like a $1 million company and you're sitting with a $50 billion company, but um, it definitely gets you a meeting because they, they'll know that it's something either they can't do, they don't want to do, um, or they, they um, need you to do. Got it. Yeah. Can I say one Please? more thing, yeah. actually? You know, because we talked about, you, your question was more about the, do you have IP, yes, no. Um, another way that it's come up with us is that, you know, I mentioned investors had asked us about this light touch FTO question, um, or that sometimes the yes, no answer was important. I think we even had, we've had people look more deeply at the license agreement, at the, the structure of it as a way to almost glean what is, what is the, um, what are the milestones that are implied mm -hmm. for the company and things like that. It's sort of, you can learn about um, 
you know, what are the, what's the business model in a way of the company? And it, it serves as an almost business model validation if some of that language ends up being in there. And people are interested in knowing, well, in a way, am I, is this, is there a new shareholder that I'm getting, you know, joining that company with, you know? So that, it, it's new, it's a different nuance, um, but it's also come up in that respect. Yeah. And actually, maybe you could just, Maybe let's shift over to licensing for a little bit, since you mentioned it. Uh, during the negotiation exercise last class, you guys, we talked about milestones. Um, we talked about them both from a function of a diligence to, keep, to make sure the company gets to a certain point, and also that there's often payments tied to achieving those milestones. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about, about the, the negotiation process? Um, I mean, I know we happen to have a Columbia loaded panel, but for you guys, right. you've worked with other universities as well. Um, when, when you're thinking about the way the companies are gonna evolve and trying to bake that into an agreement with the university, how does that process work? I mean, in our case, it was pretty open. Um, we were students and postdocs at the university, and so we, were, we hadn't yet started the company when we started thinking about that discussion. And, and so in our case, it was, you know, even the decision to whether to file for that IP at all had happened collaboratively in our case. And I think that would be true for any sort of spin-out type of technology where the, the founders are coming from the university and then licensing that technology. So it's very different, for example, if like you're a Harvard student and you're licensing technology from CMU or something like that, that would be a different style. Um, but in our case, we were spinning out of the university. So, um, I, you know, there was part of that process that involved um, you know, even I think when we filed the IP, we had to have some sort of light touch business plan or some sort of commercialization idea of how that might go, applications. And then um, we, we submitted our business plan as part of the negotiation so that we could, I think, you know, the licensing offices around the country have sort of realized that startups are different than big companies when you think about licensing. So, you know, when you're licensing to a small company, I think everyone sort of wants to see the company do well. Um, when you're thinking about licensing that 15 or 25 percent, and you're thinking about how to spread that risk, um, the large companies, you might be more in interested in cash payments than, say, equity with a startup, right? So I think in our case, just really trying to map the license agreement so that it um, helped foster the growth of the company and made sense along with the business model you know, so in our case, you know, we plan to do a large animal study, so it made sense that if we got to that milestone, that there might be a milestone payment or not associated with that, but at least it was sort of a natural discussion point. Um, so I would say it was pretty collaborative, and, and, and then we, we got some of the stuff, we predicted certain things about the business that a year or two later ended up not being the right prediction, and so then, um, at least in our case, there's been, you know, we've amended the agreement maybe twice by now, yeah. Next, so, that goes yeah. to the point we made during the class, during the negotiation, that unlike buying a car, where if you burn your relationship with the car dealer, you just go down the street and buy a car from someone else next time. <laughs> IP negotiations are, you, that agreement's going to last 20, yeah. 25 years. And you, you do your best to get it right. I mean, in our case, you'd asked about funding before. I mean, we, um, we'd made certain predictions about how we planned to finance the company, and that was, you know, that implied, like, how the agreement was written. I mean, I don't want to say anything out of turn. But basically, we didn't do exactly what we planned, although, you know, and so things change, and, and if you have an open collaborative relationship, then you can just sort of figure out what makes sense given the new reality, or I mean, if you pivot, right? Yeah, so like, if, uh, so I totally agree. This is, university licensing is a fascinating subject, simply because you, there are so many different ways that you could spin like how much value the university gives to the inventors, especially if it's the actual inventor spinning out the IP into a startup that is on a wide spectrum, and I think everyone on the spectrum has a reasonable opinion. 
as to like how much equity the, the university should get, uh, X payments, blah, 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 all of this different stuff. I think, uh, and that's just like kind of a personal thing. It's very hard, and it's not, it's very hard to like do a market analysis and understand exactly all of this different stuff. So it's really important, I think, to have a good relationship when you're going through this and just come at it from a very rational and I guess you're kind of friends because you, for in our perspective, we were students from Columbia, working with Columbia to we're start a company. Students, right? Yeah, we're friendly <laughs> students, right? So we really are, and and so coming at it from a very like rational perspective, where you can understand both person sides, and you're in a unique position because you you can like you're the student, you're part of the university, you're going to have value from this patent, but then also you're trying to start a company with a license that's going to be advantageous for the company long term, that's going to allow the company to grow and succeed. Um, so that that's very interesting. I think one thing that when probably is hard to think about, especially when you're early starting a company, is how to negotiate a license in such a way that is advantageous to investors, Columbia, and the company. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I think that's a very hard thing to do, especially when there's only two of you at the table. Um, and I think, you know, once investors come into the other side of the table, the conversations change a little bit, and you you understand more things. And it's a it's a growing beast. I would say, in many ways. IP licensing out of universities is almost something, if you keep a good relationship, I hope is something that can kind of morph um, in an interesting way that, that probably isn't true for everyone trying to, lice, to, to license technology as well. Yeah. Yeah. That makes any sense. Great. Have you guys had an experience with? with yeah. Um, what I would say is, in my experience, which you know, if I count, there's probably been five out of the 40 or so companies I've invested in. A big difference if the it's a professor who's done it before and really almost kind of comes with it's already taken care of, and then we look at it and be like, yeah, you've really done everything we'd expect, uh, versus a student uh, who requires um, the IP to come out of that university. Uh, so, and then that really, of course, varies uh, by school. Uh, the other thing is, if you compare the negotiation process of an entrepreneur to a VC and then an entity to a university licensing, there's everything. There's, it's completely open. Like, I, I think there's more information on the entrepreneurial side than there is on the venture capitalist side. It used to be the op opposite. You know, we were coming in, and you know, we'd done this so many times that you know, entrepreneurs were at a disadvantage. And now it's at least a level playing field, if not in favor of entrepreneurs. I think when you compare that against whatever entity is negotiating with the university licensing office, it's still pretty opaque. I, I think for whatever reason, there isn't as much information out there about how to not only negotiate in general, but maybe negotiate specifically with Orin at Columbia or you know, MIT. So it, it is interesting to me as an investor that it's, it is still very opaque how to work with individual uh, universities. And I'd say it's quite variable, too. I, I'd like to think it's true that everybody negotiating with a startup feels that they're negotiating with a startup as opposed to a big company. But I'd say that we've seen quite a, a wide variety of perspectives from tech transfer offices on what they're trying to get at. And I think the more enlightened ones, as you say, do recognize that ultimately you know, they're only going to get value if the startup succeeds. And if they put terms onto a startup that's going to kill it, then that benefits absolutely no one. Um, so I think sort of. A lot of our companies, um, when they apply to us, they 
you know, they, they point to this IP, they may not have yet um, negotiated with the tech transfer office, and, you, and, and often that occurs when they get the check from us as a kind of point of saying, look, we have somebody that's interested in us, um, you know, and this is what they have advised us. So having sort of external people um, coming into that negotiation can be helpful. Yeah, and I would say from the university perspective, this has been, uh, so I joined the field 10 years ago um, after consulting, you guys know that, but um, uh, after seven years at the Boston Consulting Group. I'd say over the last 10 years, not just at Columbia, but across the country, what we're seeing is the tech transfer offices have, I think, always tried to do the right thing, by and large. Um, what you're seeing, especially in the last three to five years, is a lot more of a recognition that, it, that um, intellectual property may be important to startups, some more so in some fields than others, but startups are increasingly incredibly important for the IP, um, especially in the tech field, meaning uh, the ability to get these incredibly exciting technologies to market is increasingly becoming the startup route. Um, large companies in biopharma and in tech are uh, less and less likely to take a voluntary license to early stage technologies and develop it in house. They'd rather see these things incubated in a startup um, and then acquire the startup both for the talent and also for the IP and the product as they go. Um, and so it's changed the way, it's raised the stakes significantly, I think, for most universities in terms of if we've, we've gone from doing five startups a year to seven to 12, and then we did, in the last two years combined, we did 49. Um, so you can't, it would force us three or four years ago to go back and say, we gotta streamline this, like you can't. So um, there's a lot of conversations now across the, you know, the Stanford, Caltech, Columbia, Carnegie Mellon, Cornell, others, um, about what is the right way to do this? How do you set up company licenses so that the cash drain, there's almost no cash drain in the early years, everything can get reinvested in the company, all the returns come later on. Like, how do you structure the friendly balance? I made yeah. a comment. Um, so one thing, so I actually was surprised that this class was all about IP. I thought it was just this particular day. Huh. And, and what, I was, what I like about it, or what I think is really great, and actually I wish all the faculty of all the universities in all of the world were here, because I think what I find has been very difficult um, as an investor, just like throughout, you know, just working with early stage companies from a variety of different points of view, is that when you're in the deal, it's very personal. And so if you're learning while you're negotiating, that's really hard, right? So as a, especially as a, as a professor or, or the entrepreneur or the inventor who, you know, it's your work. And so it's like your work and you're at the table and you don't know what equity is and you don't know what milestones are, you don't know what the business model is going to be, and I think that's hard in one thing, and I think, I think for, you know, the professionals, it's just, there's a dispassionate approach that you can take because you kind of, you've done it and you know what you're doing, but I, I find that, um, uh, or I don't find, I, I wish that um, there was this sort of, um, uh, um, like this learnings, um, if you were gonna do a company that you sort of were doing it in this sort of environment where it was kind of academic. And so you could sort of like get the pieces and understand how they relate where it didn't, wasn't personal. So that when you are at the table, you can kind of like take all of that. And, and I think that, I think just doing that just could streamline sure. a lot of um, some of what you're talking about. Right, that's one of the reasons why we, we now, and I showed that slide at the beginning of the class, but no matter how good and smart you think you are, you need an attorney. You cannot do this on your own. 
Um, you can't file patents on your own. You should never be licensing against a professional negotiator on your own. You need counsel. There are counsel who do this day in and day out, and they have pattern recognition on both the IP filing side and on the negotiation side, and God forbid in the litigation side, that you cannot have when you've got a sample size of two or three. Um, so, and actually going to that, I, I, we've got time for probably two more broad questions, um, and then I'm just gonna get, take a couple of audience questions if we have time. But Sean, I wanna get back to something you mentioned earlier. You said um, there's advice you give, and you're coming at this from the software side, again, so just to be clear, um, that, that you give, that it's important that the startups have a strategy yeah. around intellectual property. Um, we talked earlier on patents can get very expensive very fast, and that's per, you know, you can spend thirty dollars to $150,000 per patent family, whether you file in the U.S. or file in every country in the world, and then you could file one patent family or you can just file these patent thickets that can grow and grow and grow. How, what advice do you give your startups on how to think about this? Yeah. So uh, I, I tell them exactly what you just said, which is you, you need to develop a strategy. And then I share some of the best practices. And, and generally, one of the best practices I've seen is someone within a development group you know, will sponsor a monthly get-together. And essentially, the whole company, it's open to the whole company, um, but people will come together with ideas that are patentable. And then they'll debate them. And you know, over time, a couple you know will rise to the top, and you know, so that obviously can produce some interesting intellectual property. But more importantly, it sends a message to the company that it is important for us to think about our IP. It is important to think about what makes us unique and what makes us defensible. Uh, because I for, I'm sorry, I forget who said it, but it's absolutely true. You know, IP only really matters at the beginning and the end of a startup's life, and. Uh, in situations uh, where you're selling a company, for sure, one of the aspects that often happens post-deal, so in other words, the terms have been, or at least the, the, the headline term, the value, the acquisition price, is down. And then there's all these other terms, you know, which I don't know how much your class goes into them, but like, anyway, it'll get really boring really quick. But what acquirers will do is essentially say, you know, imply that if you don't have certain intellectual property around what you're doing, um, you know, or if you have certain open source material that you're using in a, a, a different way, these are places to go back and adjust the price. So one of the ways to combat that, again, is to have a strategy around IP, to be very aware of that and absolutely have counsel uh, involved in helping create that. Um, but also, companies that, that really shine through that process, that have demonstrated IP processes, you know, have notebooks or whatever the way to capture it, when you're on the acquisition side of that, you see, whoa, this is a company that really has its act together. And big companies still really do value IP. And I think, ironically, one of the, the largest state-owned companies, China, um, is really interested in IP, particularly US IP right now. So it is important. It is important to have a strategy. I, I think it's more about creativity and, and getting the conversation within the company uh, than just ignoring it. Yeah. Uh, actually, I'm gonna, so the, you brought up my last point, my last question, so I want to come back to this. Misty, I think you were the one who said IP has particular value at the beginning and at the end of the company. Can you just explain what you meant by that? Well, I think, yeah, I think you sort of summarized it. I think at the beginning, you're trying to get those first dollars in before you have done anything. And so sometimes the IP, it's like, it's like almost your only asset that you can 
sell. Like you can sell it. You can't. It's hard to sell you and your brain and your enthusiasm and your like. I know this is going to succeed. It's hard to sell. But you, you have a. You know, you have something there. And, and I think it's it's it translates to the end where. Um, um, you're selling the company, but with if they could do it on their own, they would, right? So if you just sort of go into a blanket assumption that if a large company that has lots of cash who really wants to do what you're doing, if they wanted to, they would try really hard and they would, they could or couldn't do it for lots of reasons, but one of the things that's gonna prevent them from doing it is the IP. So if you can be successful, if you can be ahead of the market, if you can be faster, you can do it on less money, um, you know, having that hook that even if they could do it, they can't do it without you because of your IP. I mean, that's 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 what you need to make sure, you know, is intact. Yeah. And, 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 and there's lots of other things that go into right, an acquisition. It's, and, and sometimes the IP or the starting IP just kind of gets you going. And at the end of the day, you don't have IP. It's just about your business execution and about the way you've been able to do it. But um, so I think that's, that's the kind of the two pieces. Yeah. Great. Um, Probably have time for like one or two quick questions from the audience, if we have any. Shy group. Oh wait, we have one. I didn't think it was a shy group. Go ahead. Uh, so like but I'm sorry, we're got a microphone coming your way. Why don't we just wait for the mic? Um, so obviously you guys have different backgrounds. Like you started in um, like academia in some capacity. If, like looking back, knowing where you are now, is there anything you could have kind of like skipped over to expedite where you got to where you are, or any experiences that were sort of like down a road that didn't kind of pan out, or just any advice to? Serious high leverage question here. Yeah. <laughs> How can you save them years of wasting? <laughs> <laughs> Go, anyone. Well, I have one idea. I often say this because um, I made the mistake, uh, and it's very appropriate, you know, for where we are. Is the thing that, that you really have to understand is your, your classmates uh, are really, really super impressive and are gonna do some amazing, amazing things. I remember about 15 years ago, one of my partners saying, if only he had invested in every single classmate that ever came with an idea, you know, he'd have another zero to his net worth. So, um, and it's been my experience as well, looking at my classmates, what they've done. I, I was very focused on getting a job. I had two kids. Uh, when I graduated from business school. Um, and it wasn't until I had my job that I really began spending a lot of time with my classmates that I just really appreciated that resource. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a different answer to your question, but if you really want to gain a lot of experience in, in a very short, concentrated amount of time, go out of your way to really get to know your classmates. And when your classmates call to start a company, it's, I, I guarantee your odds are gonna be no worse than venture capital odds. Um, you know, just all, all of the, everyone, you know, when you're in school, it's like this moment to not just be a student. So right. our professors become this network for us that helps. But I think we often underestimate, like if you look to your left right now and your right, to, in your seat right now, like you could tangibly change each other's lives by um, helping each other along. And, and that only gets more and more so as people progress. Um, so, yeah, we found that. Uh, maybe a different perspective. I, so I spent 11 years from between undergrad, it's right out of undergraduate, I, I worked at Merck for 11 years, and I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I spent 11 years in pharma, and I should have left, you know, <laughs> like way early, and it was just this, and, I, and as, as I reflect on it, um, 
you know, it, it's kind of this, it was an inability to take risk or feel comfortable. And I think if there was like one thing kind of down the road, I feel like I'm taking more risk now where I have a much more constrained life with like two kids and a husband and like, you know, I got like a lot of things in a box. And so, uh, you know, in, in looking back, it's like, wow, if I had a little more risk appetite when I had a lot more latitude, um, I think, you know, it's like, you know, who knows what would have happened. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have been better or worse, but I certainly see that 11 years as like a really long time right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so <laughs> I think that one thing that, that you have to think about a little bit is uh, whoever your kind of core team is that you're gonna be starting this company with, um, they're probably going to be deficient in some areas. Like our company is two scientists who started it and he's a mad scientist. I consider myself a little more polished. I might have to scrub that. <laughs> um, but, but we, so we didn't have a lot of business experience when we started the company. Um, but if you have a network and you're in an amazing place where it's like building out that type of network where you can have a lot of value from either not necessarily quote unquote advisors, like there's some advisory board, you could certainly build that if you want. But at the university in this area, you have the ability to kind of talk to people who are very knowledgeable in these other areas so that when you have to make hard decisions, you have people who are very intelligent and who have a really strong understanding of kind of what you're doing in your business that can give you advice that's valuable in places that you may be, be deficient. So that is what I would say. Really value the relationships that you have here. Build those relationships in places that you may not be the expert and then leverage those in really meaningful ways to kind of propel your growth and protect yourself against anything bad that happens. That's great. I, I guess um, networking and communication is really important and I think everybody stresses that and so I'm always the anti uh, in saying that's super important but let's not forget sort of the, the, the personal growth and the learning and I always get in my career, which has been varied and somewhat random walk, um, I always try to keep learning. And I think that has meant that, that there's never been a point where I couldn't take the risk because I developed that. There, were all, there was always something in my skill set armamentarium that was useful at a given moment. So to me, I always ask myself, am I, if I'm, if 